Welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. Well, it's that time of year again at the board. Registration renewals just closed. Hope you got those in in time. And we are now accepting applications for this year's um, Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarships. The Byra Hadley Bequest is Australia's most prestigious and sustained um, gift of this type. Um, over $3 million have, has been granted to over 220 architects since 1951. And uh, for more than 65 years, this legacy has helped architects and graduates and students of architecture to stay current and to connect with the world and undertake research and travel in cities and communities around the world in the field of their particular interest. Apart from listening to us have a chat on the podcast with people who've undertaken um, travelling scholarships. You can also read past research reports. We're in the process of compiling a library on the website. Um, Each person who undertakes a travelling scholarship is required as part of the conditions of the scholarship to prepare a report and submit it to the board. So you can download those from the website. Um, I'll put a link um, up with this podcast It's always a real pleasure to hear about the adventures and the discoveries made by people who've just come back from their Byra travels. So we thought we'd share some of those stories with you and hopefully you'll feel inspired to be part of this rich legacy of architectural travel and research. Applications close at the end of July and you can find the link to the relevant page of our website up with this podcast. I recently caught up with some returning travellers who actually took their scholarships here in Australia. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with Bobby Bailey and Owen Kelly, aka Dusty and Thirsty, who peddled a grand section across Australia. I also spoke with Nicole Larkin, whose scholarship focused on the wild edge of New South Wales and in particular ocean pools. You can hear that chat um, in the next episode. And travelling a little bit further afield, gathering information about vertical schools, I also spoke with Adam Swinburne, um, who joined me for a conversation about his developing research. Let's listen to Bobby Bailey and Owen Kelly talking about the Grand Section. Welcome, Owen Kelly and Bobby Bailey to Architecture Insights and our lovely Purple Podcasting booth. Tell me, what was the pitch for this project that won you the scholarship? Bobby, tell me about it. So the proposal was a bike trip across Australia. Um, Over 10 months, the proposal um, suggested cycle from the east coast along latitude 25 through Uluru in the centre of Australia and arrive on the west coast 10 months later. 
the idea was to have um, several stops along the route, stay for a week, document the architecture, interview locals, and at the end of the week, give back in the form of an exhibition. And so all of this was a way to understand better Australian habitation and begin to define an Australian typology or architectural style. Um, but as the trip went on, this, these initial ideas definitely formed into something else now that we're finished. Right. That's so full on to be riding a bike <laughs> across Australia. Um, but super exciting. Oh, and what is it about doing something so challenging and so intensely physical as riding a bike across the middle of Australia? Um, why was that important to the whole idea of the Grand Section? Well, it's not about the bike at all. We're not cyclists. I didn't even own a bike before we left. And it's actually about the speed of the experience and the, the physical sort of challenge of the cycle I don't like wasn't huge in a lot of ways because you'd ride for a week and stop for a week, so your body had time to adapt to it. But by slowing down, you're able to see a lot more, you're able to notice a lot more, uh, especially wind and hills and things like that, which the bike is excellent at sort of amplifying. So if you do even going up a one degree or a slope, you realise it. So, <laughs> uh, and so yeah, it's, I guess it allows you to experience things on a, on a far greater level of detail. So it's more about the body and space. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And also about being present somewhere, subject to the elements. So you always know where the wind's coming from, where the sun's going to rise, what the earth is like, like that you're cycling through. And, yeah, you're just more connected with what's going on. And what did that pace tell you? Because uh, your project was to look for an Australian architecture. What did that pace tell you about that the, the nature of the architecture that you found? I guess it's never just about architecture. Mm. Uh, with us, it's, it's about the holistic understanding of how architecture works somewhere and how it actually gets put into the ground, not on the ground, but into it. Um, and as you cycle along, it gives you the time to, for ideas to percolate that you've just seen or learnt about. And so you have time to sort of understand things a bit better. Plus it also allows you to like I was saying, connect with the landscape around you and start to read the landscape a bit. And so that adds to your whole understanding of how architecture and how buildings fit into that and what they need to fit into. Did you find what it was that you were looking for or did you find something else? Well, I, I guess when we started, it was about this, this one Australian typology. Um, and we quickly begin to learn that it's not about one particular overarching architectural style. It's about um, something that responds to each place really quite uniquely. So in the end, we ended up having 19 stops along the girth of Australia. And we can definitely say that in each place we stopped and um, the interviews that we had with the locals and the buildings we documented all responded to very different things and all things which were very particular to that place. So whether it be landscape, weather, materials, industry, the history. Um, so we very quickly, quickly learnt that each place is so unique and that the way in which people live and the buildings in these places respond to very different things. Um, I've done a bit of listening to your conversations with Gertie. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Which I enjoyed. And 
listeners, if you would like to also hear conversations with Gerthy, highly recommend. Get on the Grand Section website, check it out. <laughs> you, uh, those conversations also reveal that you engaged very um, deeply with landscape and with relationships to landscape across your travels and not just in terms of um, the creation of shelter or the creation of human shelter but in the way in the sort of long-term inhabitation of that landscape yeah absolutely and i think what one of the really interesting stops for us was was a place called woolene in western australia and yeah you can we got to have a conversation with david and francis from woolene and they're amazing and so They've basically got a cattle property and taken all the cows off to try and rejuvenate the land. And we have this idea of, you know, sustainable architecture and and to actually sort of connect with sustainability on a com- in a completely different um, area, or like as in farming, makes you rethink, the, like rethink about architecture. And so these guys have sort of said, you know, the current practice of farming, of, of pastoralism, is not working. So we need to sort of start again in a, lot, in a lot of ways, to figure out how you then go on to have cows on your property for the next 500 to 1,000 years. And David and Francis had this idea of a healthy place leading to healthy buildings. And so the buildings that are built 100 years ago when they had a huge amount of sheep on the property and it was booming and they were earning lots and lots of money because the place was healthy has led to all these incredible buildings, some of which you can only find in the Murchison area that are have very minimal structure and a cyclone proof. They're incredible. Um, but the buildings today are transportable donger type buildings, which uh, last for maybe 20 years if you're lucky and cost you 20 grand. Um, and so it's a very different way of, of thinking about architecture that perhaps to get a really good building, you don't need a lot of money or the best builders or whatever, but you actually need to start with looking at how you make the ecology of the place good, the topsoil good and to make sure that the place itself is healthy. In each place, we we operated on a hierarchy of how we looked at things. So it was place, people, stuff, always in that order. And that was stolen directly from Paul Faleros and his operation of working and how he looked at the landscape. And um, that was um, what we found really important was that place influenced so much. So it influenced everything that was there, the people, and always... Um, architecture came under the stuff and it was the least important in the hierarchy um, because it was the place and the people which defined so much which was happening there and how the buildings were and what they were built out of. And without the place and the people, you don't need the stuff. So let's talk about the background to this proposal. And I would like to know, because you guys both studied at University of Newcastle, yeah? But how much is this project a product of what you've learned in your architectural education at Newcastle and how much is it about you as people in your personal experience? Um, I think it's it's a big product of our architectural education at Newcastle and it's, I think, specific to the professors that we had there. So um, our pro- professors were Peter Startrebry, Rick Laplastria, Paul Flaris at Times and John Roberts. And their approach is about landscape, so a very site-specific response to the place. And they're always preaching the importance through story, um, storytelling, the importance of understanding the place to then know how to respond to it. And so I think that's a lot where this 
inquiry into Australia came from, but for us in our architectural education, Australia as the precedent was still missing. And so that's what this was starting to try to look at. And I think for me as well, you know, there's always input from family that, that you, you probably don't think about enough but underlies a lot of things. Yeah, I'm curious to know if some of that emerged as you were going, actually, that connection. Well, our, our parents emerged out of the dust and to say hello occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's great. They're putting to work, making models. <laughs> really? Where were you making models? Uh, a few places, but in Mekathara, my parents in Western Australia came along and made a big scale model of a mine site for us. Way to go, Mr. and Mrs. Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> and so was that, that was for the exhibition which you put on at Mekathara? Yeah. And that was, I read that you were also um, premiering a film there, was it at the same time? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. So I got asked to speak this at the... Uh, mass getting hectic, more and more hectic as it goes by. <laughs> yeah, no. so by Western Australia, it was pretty, it's getting pretty elaborate, mm-hmm. the exhibitions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we got asked to speak at the uh, Australasian Student Congress, but obviously we couldn't cycle back quick enough. So we decided to send in a film. <clears throat> and so we, we spent an extra week in Mekathara, this sort of small mining town on the, the Goldfields, Goldfields Highway, and sat in like a shop front and made this film for a week. And if you hear the audio on it, you can hear the trucks of the main street go past. Fantastic. It's pretty good. <laughs> but we wanted to make, we wanted to just check our film and make sure that it was showing all right and the audio worked and everything and they have this incredible outdoor cinema in Mekathara called the Mekathara Picture Gardens and so we sort of rocked up to the council and said oh, can we uh, can we use the outdoor picture theatre for a night and they're like what are you doing there <laughs> like, oh, I just want to show this film we made they're like yeah righto so we got a few locals that we'd met during the week there and together and we had some you know, drinks and food and whatever and watched this film to get some feedback from non-architects and locals and the best feedback we got from the, from the night was, I thought I was going to be bored, but I wasn't. <laughs> that's high praise. I reckon that's pretty good, that's yeah. That's really good. Yeah. You turned it right around. That's right. So well then, done. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Send it off to Sydney and then. I, I hope the students were equally as, uh, as enthusiastic about it. So with the exhibition... Which is, you've, you've started an exhibition of material. Is that um, all of the drawings that you did on the, on the way across? Yeah, so the exhibition now, which is touring for the next four months around Australia to public spaces, is a collation of everything that we did on the trip. So all of the exhibitions that we produced in that one week stay is a part of the exhibition. Um, specimens and different things we collected from that place um, or were given from locals um, and also stories from the locals and blogs um, that we produced in that week as well. Was that always a part of the plan that you would take this material back on exhibition? Yeah, in the initial proposal yeah. mm-hmm. for the Byra Hadley Scholarship it was. Um, and it was almost a, a, a concrete kind of way to make ourselves produce all of all of this work so at the end of the trip we had this body of work which then we could showcase to everyone else the stuff that we we hoped we would learn um and now it is where we're delivering australia's innards to its outer edge almost so the exhibition tour doesn't follow the same pathway that the section followed does it no 
What's the significance of that? Why have you chosen those different places? Well, there's a big map uh, that we use for our exhibition. It's a map of Australia. And it's got some straight lines around the, the outside of it. And that's the population density of the country. And so like Bobby said before, we're taking trying to take the inns to its outers, like gutting the country and showing what it's got sort of thing. And, you know, 85% of the country lives on the coast, lives within 50 k's of the coast. So, <coughs> but there's all this incredible stuff in Australia's inland, which uh, a lot of it we don't know about, we don't get taught about. It's definitely not part of our architectural education, but is crucial to understanding the country, understanding how you work with it and how you think about it. As well as just some incredible stories, like the first mosque in Australia was in Mari in 1884. It's like 140 years of Muslim history in this country that we forget about. And yeah, it's just there's and we've seen some like pretty much inland cities of uh, Aboriginal structures that are pretty much uncovered at the moment. It's just like there's all this incredible stuff that we have no idea about and that changes the whole way you think about the country. Who do you want to show this exhibition to? What sort of people are you hoping will come in and have a look? Um, we're taking this exhibition to public spaces because we want to engage with a broader audience about Australia and about the idea of Australian architecture because a lot of people, even even us as students um, studying architecture, we always um, invest in places other than Australia, so go overboard to look at classical examples um, of architecture rather than investing in our own country and believing that there's precedence in Australia to be thinking about. So it's about engaging conversation with um, general Australians outside of the architectural networks and audiences to, to be saying, well, actually, there is some amazing stuff in Australia and it's worth investing in and thinking about. And actually, this is a part of our country and us as Australians. Um, so we've been going to local markets in cities, um, farmers markets, Blacktown markets, where there's a bit of everything, um, going to universities. Um, and public parks and public spaces. So in lots of different public places around the country. Yesterday, I think, was our most eclectic audience we've had. And it was fantastic to see the breadth of different people come and inquire about what it was and, and just tell little snippets of history of Australia, like the first mosque in Maori and then being blown away and just so interested in, in the Australian history. Mm. Um, is there a particular significance to the places that you're exhibiting? Obviously, you know, you've just talked about Blacktown and the sort of people who are there, but um, the, other, the other towns that you've selected to take this national exhibition, no less. Uh, is there a, have you got a particular connection to those well, places? Uh, not all of them. Like a lot of them are major cities, yeah. uh, which is uh, you know, where a large chunks of the population are. And then, uh, but we are going to a few places we went to on the trip like Mikathara, which is in Western Australia, where we showed the film. We had made some really good connections with some locals there, and yeah, it'd be really good to see them again and to take the exhibition there, as well as Alice Springs, which is such a fascinating town, an incredible city, um, and then a few towns in southern Queensland that we went through. Yeah, I think Alice is a bit more like Blacktown than anybody realises, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most mm. definitely. And mm. going back to some of these towns in which we did spend time on the trip, it's also a way to come back and say thank you again. Like this is this is actually what we did with everything you gave us and all the time and stories and information you gave us. And now we're taking this around the country and showcasing your stories and how you live to other people. Mm. And so 
again, it's part of that exchange, which is why we were doing the exhibitions on the road, not only to make us do work, but as also a way to say thank you to the people who would give us their time. Mm. And, and showing that genuine interest in a place just opens up so many doors and as well provides a bit of pride, I think, to the community. Like if an outsider comes in and says, hold on, stuff you have here is absolutely amazing. Like a, it's a really nice way to come in and try and not be as much of a tourist <laughs> instead of just taking from the town and then moving on. Yeah, a real genuine engagement, yeah. Um, so what's happened since you've come back? Because you, you started in was January 2017, is that right? February 2017. Feb 2017 and came back December 2017, is that right? Well, you got back in January. We arrived on the West Coast uh, December, close mm -hmm. to Christmas, and ended up getting back in January to the right. East Coast. Okay. Mm. So what's been happening since then? Like, has all of this um, changed the way that you think about architecture? Has it changed the way that you think about what your practice might be? Absolutely. Fundamentally it has, yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, it really changed um, how we would... Uh, engage with houses. So we come back and it was so hard to sleep in a bedroom again. Windows were so far away. Rooms were too big. Houses kind of seemed obsolete. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> that was firstly yeah. the problem. Yeah, you got back and it was weird sleeping in a bedroom when you can't see the moon. But genuinely in, in terms of the urban condition, like do you, do you look at it differently? Mm. We realise how much we don't know about the places that we do come from. Newcastle, where we mm. studied the cities. Um, because we looked at these places in, in such depth and understood so much about them that we come back and we realise, yeah, how much we don't know and how much we do need to know to be designing for this country. Could you do it the same way around cities? Mm, yeah, most great. definitely. We're talking about doing a drawing a line from, say, like Lithgow, west of the Blue Mountains, to, to the beach and just studying all the towns through there. Because then you'd cut through so many sort of cultural divides and cultural sort of um, groups as well as different buildings and different adaptations. Ecologies, landscapes, which influence so much. Do you think you could hope to have the same sort of connection to community though in those places? That's what you got to find out, I guess. Maybe you need to spend longer than a week, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, there is um, a very different concept of time. That's something we, we did discover um, compared to regional Australia and cities. Um, so people in communities, again, a different sense of time than the white towns we would go through. But um, the busyness, I think, might be something that's quite hard to, to overcome in cities and engage on a much deeper level with people. Mm -hmm. But maybe you just need more time. Yeah. But I think one of the big things for me that came out of the trip, uh, it removes a lot of the indecision around design, which I think university sort of breeds into a bit. Instead of put it basing everything on assumption or uh, trying to figure out something behind a computer or with a desktop study, um, or even to figure out which things are crucial about the design. So which parts do you really need to focus on, do you really need to work on, and you actually need to design? Which parts can you, you know, let the client have a bit of leeway or let the builder have a bit of leeway or those types of questions? <laughs> um, because the way we sort of worked across the country, you're able to, we documented so many things and we got we had thermometers to assess things. So now we have this really big sort of uh, precedence that we can delve into, like a big pool of precedence. And from that, we know how to, to study things in order to get the answer we need to or know how to, who to talk to or, or what type of things to look for to get the answers we need. 
and also how different materials are performing in different yeah. climates and how different buildings or spaces are performing in terms of their height and temperatures and important stuff that we, we know now works rather than just ideas. Yeah, and even like, orientating, like you know, we always get taught that you must orientate a building to the north. And we did a, a project with some school kids at a salt mine in Western Australia and it was about the shade at two o'clock and it turns out that if you want to design for two o'clock shade, you have to face your building to the two o'clock sun, which is really dumb, but didn't we didn't really fully understand until we actually did it. So it's really basic things that, that we don't really f- understand at a practical level at university that have been great to test. And so how did you document it all? Yeah, so it was all kind of going back to really old-fashioned ways of doing things, all by hand you know, putting a thermometer on the end of a broomstick and holding it up against the roof to test the temperatures. And so we had uh, two temperature, two thermometers, one inside, outside, shade, non-shade, testing these things, tape measures, um, string lines um, to try to understand how things are falling or not falling in terms of gradients. Um, And then, yeah, observation, important that we would just sit and look and analyse things. And ask the same question to a lot of different people. (laughs) And so you get like across, you get uh, different answers to the same question, and then you compile all the similar things. And were you measuring the same things at every stop? We were always asking one question, um, which was how does place influence in habitation? So it always brought it back to the building. So a lot of the time we would be measuring buildings, um, data from buildings, um, measurements, temperatures, um, mostly, and. Did people on the whole get what you were on about? Like, <laughs> most often not. Right. They really had no idea what we were doing there. Yeah, um, okay. But because we were so genuine in wanting to just spend time with them and want to learn about their stories and listen to what they had to say about the place, um, they would always give us their time regardless. Mm. That was one consistency that we did find. Yeah, it was amazing. And then when we would produce the exhibition at the end of the week, whether it be in the A5 paperback zine or our drawings on the wall in the local library or at the school then people got it then they understood what we were doing which also showed the power of giving back and that exchange and actually producing this stuff um, and putting it down on paper to then communicate it back part of that as well is that we were consciously open to sort of take on any opportunity so someone said oh do you want to i'll take you for a drive out to wherever we go yep That'd be great, thank you. And then you'd go in and jump in the car and you'd just find all this amazing stuff that's not directly architecture, but it just informs your better understanding of the, of the whole place mm. and how then architecture fits into that. Did your drawing change? So in our exhibition now, it showcases the exhibition from each place on the road and you can definitely see our development of drawing along the way, which is quite hilarious. Um, <laughs> but we also did oh. start well, to... hilarious? <laughs> Because they were just really shit at the start, the drawings. Was, had, our first <laughs> exhibition was on Fraser Island in the central campground there. And you had all these sort of drawings up in a way that we'd sort of present at uni for like a sketch design or schematic or something. And we thought they were, you know, okay, they were okay and <laughs> put them up and sort of this mob of tourists comes along and they go, oh, some kids must have done some drawings and then just sort of wander <laughs> off. But by the end of it, we definitely didn't have that response. <laughs> but also very quickly, and this was kind of some cues that we got off um, Paul Phileris' drawings and um, Troppo as well in, in 
who both did really inspirational student trips back in their 70s. Um, especially Paul Phileros, though. He did these form of drawing which was very comical in a sense. But through that humour, it conveyed exactly what you needed to know. And so we were starting to kind of steal these different techniques of drawings and just found how powerful they were. You know, for us, it started to become that universal language in Indigenous community that we stopped at Wallace Rockhall, where um, the English might be, you know, their third or fourth language. And so words aren't going to to get the best result. And so we did all these kind of really comical drawings and comic series about um, the maintenance problems that people have with their houses there. And we just had a really fantastic response that, you know, yes, they were funny and people could understand them, but also that we were putting um, all their woes that they have down on paper. If you had to do it all over again, would you? And would you do anything differently? Um, Actually, maybe more interestingly, could you do it in a different country? Most definitely. Yeah. It would be, yeah, interesting even to do it again in Australia and start cutting all of these sections through Australia to understand the difference in habitation. So even a north-south, even a north-south section would would show mo- so much more about mm. the changes in, in habitation because of such because of how broad that change is in, in climate. Or if there's a uni out there that wants to give us a year group for a year, we could do southwest and northeast. Which is a, a section we've been talking about with Adrian Wilkie from Troppo <laughs> and Paul's late wife, um, the late Paul Flaris's wife, Sandra. Um, so, yeah, jump on board. <laughs> I could see there's going to be a whole lot more cycling going on. Having <laughs> <laughs> camels. Has it changed your mind about what you thought was an Australian vernacular? Yeah, so as... As we had said before, the initial proposal was about this Australian typology and this one architectural style, but it very quickly changed that there is a number of of Australian vernaculars that respond to each place. And so each building that we came across was, was very uniquely responsive to that particular place, the people, the landscape, the ecologies, the history of the industry. Um, and that all of them were actually so um, valuable in starting to learn and understand what has influenced them to be the way they are. Mm. There was one uh, building type, I guess, that we thought was the most Australian, Mm. which is a thing called a bow shade, uh, which is seen prolifically sort of through the country, um, all the way, or east coast or west coast. And it's essentially some sticks, what have you got? somehow fix them together, put some mesh on top or some other sticks, like smaller sticks, and then put some branches or thatch or whatever's around on top. And so it's basically a shade structure, but it's cooler than a solid roof because air can get through it. And then if it's really hot, you can put water on top of it and that acts like a evaporative air conditioner. <clears throat> but these things change throughout the continent. So they change depending on what materials available or uh, who was building them or what skills people had. And so they actually became really responsive to where they were, mm. but they all worked on the same principles. And then, yeah, they're great. Is that based on an Indigenous architecture? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, so a lot of the summer structures that we learned about in each of the places had these basic principles um, of a bow shade. And so they've just 
transcended over time. Mm. And a lot of they are quite prolific in showgrounds of a lot of regional towns we yeah. found. So over animal shelters, um, and in a couple of homesteads that we came across, the old um, the old houses in which the indigenous people would live on in that landscape, they had shading on the exterior of their houses made out of these bow shades and also um, cooling shacks, um, they're called. And so they'd have spin effects on the side and on the roof and have the sprinkler. <laughs> but what was really quite interesting and an undercurrent that we did find in a lot of the buildings from these places is when we could get data um, and examples of the Indigenous architecture of that place, the materials and construction methods that were used in the Indigenous dwellings had then continued through into the Whitefella settlement. So um, in Windora, in southwest Queensland, um, east of Birdsville, we found some examples of a winter Indigenous shelter. So it was, um, you know, a timber structure and leaves on top in summer and then in winter they would clad it with a mud cladding so it was a thermal mass. Um, they'd rake out the fire over night time so then the the heat would radiate back in on the inhabitants inside. And then the buildings, which were really popular um, once the Whitefellas settled the area, were a rammed earth building. Um, so you can start to see these links between obviously the materials at the place but also the construction methods. I think a really pivotal moment for me was um, when we were in Birdsville, we, well, Windora, we engaged with the the Mythica mob, which are the traditional owners of that place, and they invited us out on an archaeology dig, which was happening out on a station the week later. And they were doing a salvage excavation of a skeleton, which they thought was one of their ancestors, so that's why they were digging it up. But at the same time, they were looking at another site, which was... Um, stone circles um, and so they were trying to understand what they were because they ran for kilometres along these sand dunes and the archaeologists thought um, and if they're correct they're the largest examples of permanent inhabitation um, of indigenous permanent inhabitation in Australia and it was that moment just by being in that place talking to the indigenous elders of that place um, we had the chance to go out and experience this stuff and learn about what's out there. And so I think at that point, I really realised that it was the right thing to be doing, yeah. to be learning about our country. Far out. <laughs> yeah. And so now they're going back. They're going back out this year, the archaeologists. They've gotten PhD grants and, and different um, university funding to be pushing this analysis even further with this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but it was just great to get it inside. That's the great. So is that on. the kind of thing that you want to stay connected to? I think there's a lot of stuff we want to go back and yeah. stay in touch with for sure. Mm -hmm. And a lot of opportunities, you know, um, mm. in the regional and remote parts of Australia, there's so much more opportunity for agents, for agency and so quickly. Um, so we feel like we could go into back to any of these places and really test some great things or be starting to, to shake things up in different ways. You know, the story yeah. about getting agency quickly or being part of a community quite quickly we were in a town called Quilpie and that was um, probably one of our worst exhibitions because we it was their centenary celebrations of, since the town was gazetted so since it was uh, made a town and we ended up going to the ball so we went to buy tickets from the, the visitor centre and the lady there said you realise it's formal dress 
we said, yeah, yeah, no worries. As we're wearing shorts and sort of ripped t-shirts and things. She goes, no, it, it's formal dress. I'm like, oh, okay. So we had to borrow suits and a dress off some locals to go to this ball. And we uh, just had the best night. We were probably the only people under 50 dancing. And then a few months later, a local artist did this painting of the ball. And she painted us into like the, the center of the painting or the bottom left of the painting. And so even within a week, you sort of become part of that town's history, like you're actually involved in it. Mm. And so it's really nice to, to see that by actually being invested in a place, even for that small time, you become part of it. Um, such an inspiring trip to do. So congratulations, and I hope that everybody comes along and has a look at Girthy on its way around Australia. That's the name of the tent, by the way, everybody. Yeah. And this is just the beginning of the exhibition. So so um, Girthy with Slim Edges uh, is touring for the next four months around Australia, so from June till October. So um, our next stop is Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Mikathara, Darwin, Alice Springs, and then we head back out east to Roma, Theodore, Brisbane, Singleton and Blackheath. The last two are our hometowns, which we're making some pretty special appearances at. Mm. So we booked out the pub in uh, Blackheath, the Ivanhoe, for the, the final hoorah in the first weekend of October. Excellent. Well, good luck with it. And thanks very much for coming in this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was Bobby Bailey and Owen Kelly talking about the grand section. Um, you can you can follow their exhibition across Australia on their website. Um, you can go and check out um, Girthy the tent if you happen to be in any of those locations over the next few months. Um, and if you'd like to, and we will uh, post all of the outcomes of their. Re- their research on our website as well uh, once the report is completed. Thanks for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm Dice Nape.